standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. So good evening, everyone. Welcome back tonight. Uh, so happy to see you. Last night we talked about Revelation chapter 9 and 11. And we found, as we used a literal historical method of Bible study, uh, going over our ten rules and defining certain things from Revelation 9, i.e. one being locusts as well as the river Euphrates, we're able to come to the conclusion that those two chapters are talking about the Muslim Islamic world or the Arab nations. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to continue to lay a foundation that will really... Uh, be important for the rest of our time together. Um, before I do that, though, I want to tell you a little story about a wise man. A wise man was asked one time, what is truth? And he said, truth is the letter A. Now, you might think that sounds funny. Why is truth the letter A? The reason why truth is the letter A is because nobody ever questions whether or not A is the first letter of the alphabet. We just take it for granted that A is the first letter of the alphabet. And when we approach God's word that way, we cannot approach it with the mind of the skeptic. We have to approach it with the mind that it is true. And if we do that, we find the Bible opens up for us, much like the alphabet. So we accept that the letter A is A, and then we add to that B, C, D, and E, and we continue on through the alphabet. And after that, we're able to make words. And then we can take those words and we can put them together and we make sentences. And then we can take those sentences and we can make paragraphs. And with those paragraphs, we can tell a story. And this is the same way the Bible works. We begin with the very basic foundations and we build upon those. And before long, we have a prophetic story, a prophetic truth that all can understand. The problem today is many people do not accept that. And so we have spiritualistic teachings about the Bible or we just have people ignore it altogether. Now, I want us to remember this evening our theme, our theme of our meeting, and that is Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. It tells us that a prudent man foreseeth the evil before it cometh to pass and hideth himself, but the foolish pass on and are punished. We want to be wise this evening as we study the word of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue with our chart, except this time we're going to be on the far left side of the chart. Last night we were on the right side of the chart. We looked at this angel flying in the midst of heaven crying, woe, woe, woe. And the three angels then that come beneath it, the woe angels or the trumpets. But tonight we're going to go to the left side. And we're going to start with this image, this great image that we're going to find in the book of Daniel chapter 2. This image having a head of gold, arms and breasts of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet that are mixed with iron and clay. Now, reading the whole chapter will give a full detail, but what we're going to do tonight is just hit the high points. And so you have some homework to do after this meeting tonight. You need to go back and read Daniel chapter 2 to get the full context. But the dream is a dream that came to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon in 603 BC, a heathen king. But the interpretation that came to Nebuchadnezzar was given through the prophet Daniel, a servant of God. And so as we begin to look at this, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. And as I said before, we're going to have to hit the high points. 
We're not going to be able to get into all the fine details for sake of time. But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. And we're going to let the Bible be its own expositor. And we're going to begin to see how it opens to us and makes perfect sense if we approach it from a right perspective. Verse 28 reads, But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. What happened with Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he can't remember. And so he searches all the land of Babylon to try to find someone to give him an interpretation. He goes to wise men, soothsayers. They all come and they cannot give him the interpretation. They can't give him the understanding. And so then the Lord sends the prophet Daniel to interpret the dream for him. And here Daniel tells him that he has been given this dream to reveal secrets and to make known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, we live in the latter days today. So Nebuchadnezzar is this head of gold. And we're going to see that from the Bible. Because what we're dealing with is four universal kingdoms, starting with Babylon to the end of time. Go with me to verse 37 of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, we read, Thou, O king, art king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Right here we see, thou art this head of gold. So that we know that the gold on the image, and we also have a chart here as well. Now this is an original from the 1800s. And Bible students used this chart to teach from then. And so what we're going to begin to see as we continue to study these next several nights is that the relevance of what they studied then has even more relevance for us today because we are that much nearer the return of Jesus Christ than they were in their day. And so we start with the head of gold being Babylon. Babylon was a continuation of the Assyrian Empire. And it was over Asia for 1,300 years. It was founded by Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah. Let's learn a little bit about Nimrod. If we go to Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, looking in verse 8, and Nimrod will become an important figure for us to look at tomorrow night as well, and we'll talk more about him then, but in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, we read, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Sinar. So Babylon really dates proper from 747 B.C., but in prophecy we start in 677 B.C. Now why do we do that? Why is a kingdom not recognized in prophecy that started in 747 till 677? And the reason why is kingdoms in Bible prophecy are not recognized until they come in contact with the people of God. Then they begin to play a part in the prophetic drama. So it was in 677 B.C. that Manasseh, king of Judah, was taken captive by Babylon. And we can read about that in 2 Chronicles 32. So now we have dealt with our head of gold. So we're going to move on to the breast and arms of silver.
And we find that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39. Daniel 2, verse 39. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. But what we want to focus on is this, another kingdom shall arise inferior to thee, after Babylon. Who would succeed Babylon but Medo-Persia? And we have the representation on this image with a arms of silver and breast of silver. The latter part of the verse reads, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. So this kingdom is falling in between the kingdom of gold and the kingdom of brass. Two is in the middle of one and three, right? So it makes sense then that this is falling succession to Babylon. Who was the power that succeeded Babylon was Medo-Persia. And so Cyrus, king of Persia, took Babylon. He slew Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and ended the empire. And the Persian empire rose to power in 538 B.C. Another homework assignment for you would be to read Daniel chapter 5, and you can read about the fall of Babylon. But we're going to keep moving here because we have some ground to cover this evening. We're going to talk about the thighs of brass. We find that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Excuse me. No, we're still in verse 39. Forgive me here. We're still in verse 39. We need to look at this brass kingdom. We would look for a kingdom that would succeed Persia. And what kingdom was that? Well, history will tell us, if you're a lover of history, that that kingdom was Greece. Greece succeeded Medo-Persia. Alexander the Great conquered Darius in the Battle of Arbera in 331 B.C. And so then we have now our thighs of brass. So let's move now to Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Verse 40 in Daniel 2, we read, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Who was the kingdom that succeeded Greece? Well, lovers of history would know that it would be Rome. Rome was the successive power to Greece. Rome had a wider extent than any of its predecessors, and it left no kingdom unsubdued. Just like iron is the strongest of metals, Rome was the strongest of all these four kingdoms. It also ruled the longest period of any of these kingdoms. And we're going to see that more clearly as we continue to study. It succeeded Greece in the Battle of Macedonia in 168 B.C., and then seven years later it entered into a famous league with the Jews in 161 B.C., thus putting it on the stage of being connected with God's people in prophetic history. So therefore, we date Rome from 161 B.C. on. Now, we've come down to the feet. The feet that are part of iron and part of clay. And we read about them in verse 41. It says here, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with miry clay. You see, the significance of all this 
in prophetic history. Now, you have to keep in mind that the vision that Daniel received or was interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar was given quite a while before the rise of Rome. Yet, we have a perfect prophetic map. As we talked about last night, we're going to take these charts and we're going to use them as you would use a map to study geography, except we use these images, these figures, to understand what God is trying to tell us. And we get an expansion of our understanding, and that will make more sense too as we continue. But the significance is that Rome would be divided. It would not be conquered by another major kingdom. Rome was first strong, then it was rich, then it was luxurious, but then it finally became weak, much like what is happening to America today. It became a prey to the barbarians of northern Europe, and they were inspired by easy conquest and untold riches as they overran Rome. And they broke up Rome into ten kingdoms, which corresponds to the ten toes on the image. Bible prophecy really does not miss a mark. And these divisions were accomplished between 356 B.C. and 480, excuse me, 356 A.D. and 483. And so they continue to the present day, actually. Some have gone on for short periods. Some have gone on for longer. But they still are generally known as the ten kingdoms of Western Europe. There has never been an effort to bring a permanent union. No successful effort. It's been attempted by force of arms. It's been attempted by diplomacy of statesmen, alliances, and intermarriages. But they all have failed. And why is that? Well, we're told here in verse 43, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. You're not going to take molten iron and get it to mix together with clay and remain together. as the same as you would not get oil and water to combine. They have remained divided until this time, and they will remain divided until they are consumed. And so in this image, we have the great outline of world history from Babylon till the end. Now, this is really an amazing synopsis of this history, presented in one view. But what is the object of this view? What is it really to show us? Well, it leads us up to one great fact, and that's found in verse 44. It says here, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And this is where we are today, brothers and sisters. We are down here, and we are waiting for a fifth kingdom that will stand forever. Now, by and large, these governments, these kingdoms are past. What remains then for us today, living in our time, is the setting up of this everlasting kingdom of God. Now, some thought this happened in the days of Christ, but I will tell you why that is really not possible. If we keep reading here in verse 45, we see, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, and the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. What is going to happen in the days of these kings? There's going to be a stone that will be cut, that stone which represents the return of Jesus Christ, and it is going to destroy all earthly governments, and it will absorb their territory. Now, there might be one point of objection here as we think about this, and that is this. Have not the ten kingdoms of the Roman Empire all passed away and the prophecy failed? But the reality of this is this is that it matters not 
about the boundaries that they have changed or even the identity in most cases. It's the fact that the kingdom is still divided to this day. If you think about it, Napoleon tried to unite Europe. Hitler tried to unite Europe. They even tried to unite Europe recently with the Eastern European Union. But we have Brexit now. They have tried consistently to bring these kingdoms together, but yet the Bible says they will remain divided. We have to trust the sure word of prophecy. It is waiting to be struck by the rock without hands, the return of Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to do is continue to move forward on the chart, and we're going to see that prophecy is circular. And the principle that prophecy works off of is we have revelation in Daniel chapter 2, and then we begin to move into expansion of the revelation. So I think back to when I was in college, and I would be asked to read I can remember one I had time I had was asked to read The Marble Fawn, which was one of the most boring books that I've ever read. And I wanted to get the cliff notes because I just wanted the high points. I wanted the highlights. And so in many ways, Daniel chapter 2 is like the cliff notes of prophecy. It is the grand outline. It tells you the whole story. And everything else then will fall inside of this outline in more perfect detail. It expands upon itself. That's how it works with Daniel 2. And Revelation will expand as well the same way. When you understand that, it eliminates a lot of confusion and it keeps us out of trouble. But what we're going to do here is as we look at this, we see here with Daniel 2, now we see another line of beasts. These are beasts this time. Figures that will teach us more about what we learned in Daniel 2. Starting with a lion with eagle's wings, a bear that is raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, a leopard with four wings and four heads, and then these two nondescript beasts in two different forms, two different phases as we look at this. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, as we begin to define these things and look at them. But before I go there, I want to share with you this one point. We must understand something. If you go with me to 1 Corinthians, Chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible says something to the Apostle Paul to us that is very important. In verse 10 it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. That word divisions can also be interpreted as schism. But that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. Now, this is an admonishment that we should strive to live by as God's professed people, yet today we have so many people saying so many different things. But when we deal with prophecy, if we will use a literal historical methodology, and we talked about the 10 rules last night, the 10 rules of Bible study, if we will use those rules, we would actually fulfill exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, that we would all speak the same thing. We can do that. So now then, we're back in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to be in verse 17. In verse 17 of Daniel 7, it says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, or four kingdoms. So what we see here is that the Bible will define itself for us. We don't have to guess at these things. It actually will tell us. Many people have tried to guess at this, and they don't need to, because it's right here in the Scriptures telling us what we're dealing with. What are these kingdoms? Well, these kingdoms are like the kingdoms that we see in Daniel chapter 2. 
It's just they're given greater detail or greater understanding by a different type of figure, a figure that is a beast figure. Now, these kingdoms rise out of the sea. Now, what is a sea? Well, excuse me. Let's go to uh, verse 2 first before we go there. Daniel chapter 2, or Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. How did they rise is a question we need to ask ourselves. In verse 2 it says, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, what is a sea in Bible prophecy? That's where we need to go now. Well, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, we get a definition for us. And this is how we have to work with the scriptures. If we have a figure in the Bible, we trace our figure through the Bible, and once we find a definition for our figure, and it fits, then we know that we have found the explanation for what we're dealing with. And in verse 15 of Revelation 17, we see, And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we have a definition for sea. We have it as peoples. And if we think of water, we think of a sea, we think of lots of people. And sure enough, the main populace of the world has always come out of Europe, right? Started there. It's the cradle of humanity, that area. And so then we know we're dealing with multitudes of people. Now, there are winds around these seas, and winds in Bible prophecy represent strife. And so we see these kingdoms coming up through war and strife. And if you are a lover of history, you will know that that is the truth about what happened here. These kingdoms rose and fell by revolutions and political strife. So then we're going to be back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 4, as we continue here. In Daniel 7, verse 4, we read, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, when we look at our image here, we see that this lion with eagle's wings is directly across from the head of gold. It is a direct parallel to Babylon. We're dealing with the same power. Gold is the chief or the head of metals, just as the lion is the king of beasts. So it's a fitting emblem to represent Babylon, the kingdom of empires, as well as it has eagle's wings. And if you think about it, the eagle is the king of birds. And Babylon in its glory was the king of all empires and really no empire since any building or structure that mankind has yet to produce can rival what they had in Babylon. Now, these eagle wings also denoting the rapidity of conquest. And so Babylon from 677 to 538 B.C. rules, 139 years. Now, if we look in verse 5 of Daniel 7, we read, And behold, another beast, a second, like unto a bear, and it was raised up itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. You see, this now is a symbol of Persia. How is that a symbol of Persia or a fitting emblem, a bear raised up on one side? Well, a lover of history would know that two empires had to come together to conquer Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. But the Persians were the stronger of the two. Actually, they were the leading element in both military and political. 
And these three ribs in the mouth of the bear have commonly been understood to be the three provinces of Medo-Persia, that being Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And so Medo-Persia ruling from 538 B.C. to 331 B.C., uh, 207 years. Now we're going to be in verse 6. In verse 6 we read, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now we're starting to get into some very interesting symbolism here. We have a leopard with four wings and four heads. Well, we see that it is directly opposite on our chart from the thighs of brass. Well, is this a fitting emblem for Greece? Yes, it would be. In many ways, a leopard is a very cunning and very fast beast. And Alexander the Great, to conquer the then-known world at that time, was very cunning and very fast. It's said that Alexander the Great would conquer kingdoms faster than other militaries could have marched their armies through it, other generals. And so Alexander the Great was a man of licentiousness and wildness, and he died very shortly after he conquered the existing known world. He died in a drunken stupor in Babylon, and his empire was divided up into four parts, which then would align with the four heads, four generals that succeeded him and divided Greece into four divisions. And so then, Greece rules from 331 B.C. to 161 B.C., 177 years. But we've done all that to get to Daniel 7-7. Because this is where things begin to get very interesting for us as we study Bible prophecy. We read here in verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold a forced beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Nothing in nature to describe this beast. This beast is so strong, so fierce, so ravenous and destructive that nothing in nature can match it. It is a monster with ten horns, but it is in two phases. If we look in verse 24 of Daniel 7, we read, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kingdoms that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So then, on Daniel chapter 2, we saw the ten toes. Now we're seeing ten horns that come up on this beast, and this representing actually the ten divisions of Rome, because Rome was not conquered, Rome merely fell and divided. So what were these ten divisions? These barbarian tribes that divided up Rome. Well, we have the Huns or the Alemanni, which now make the Germanic people today, the Germans. The Franks, which went on to become France. The Visigoths, which are now Spain. Suevi, which would be Portugal. The Lombards being Italy. Then the Burgundians, which make up the Swiss or Switzerland. The Anglo-Saxons, the Great Britons. And then we have the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. These are no longer with us today. They have become extinct because they had to be taken down for this other phase of Rome to be set up. And so then we see Daniel 2 and this 
toes of Daniel 2 corresponding with the ten horns of Rome are the ten horns of this nondescript beast. Now, in verse 8 we read, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And I beheld in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. What are we dealing with here? Well, if you are a lover of history, you would know that all Protestant churches at one time acknowledge this is the papacy or papal Rome, the papal side of Rome, the second phase or continuation of the Roman Empire. Rome never actually fell. It just changed. And that's what you would see if you were to study history of this empire. In verse 24, it tells us, it says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Three kingdoms plucked up to make a way for the papal phase of Rome. And what were these kingdoms? We saw them just a moment ago, but it was the Heruli in 493 A.D. that had to come down, then the Vandals in 534 A.D., and then the Ostrogoths in 538 A.D., and this is taken from Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now, in verse 25, we're told, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and things to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Now, what we need to understand is we're hitting highlights here. And so, we want to deal with some aspects of this that help us understand the time of absolute power of the papal phase of Rome. Justinian, the emperor of the East, decreed the bishop of Rome head of all the churches in 538, excuse me, 533. But it was not until 538 that all opposing powers had been put down, and then the decree would go into full effect. So then, we're going to pause here for a moment to learn a great prophetic lesson from the Bible. This will give a lot of relevance to what we're going to deal with on night four. And that is the day for your principle. So what I'd like to do is go to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14 to begin to understand what's being spoken of here in the time, times, and dividing of time that the papal phase of Rome would be in effect, in full effect. It says here in Numbers chapter 14 verse 34, after the number of days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. Here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, we're talking about when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were looking to go into the promised land, they sent ten spies in, and those ten spies that were there for forty days, and they came back, eight of them with an evil report, two of them with a good report, Joshua and Caleb. But because the children of Israel believed the evil report, then they were given a punishment of 40 years to wander in the wilderness, each day for a year for the time the spies were in the land. Now, we want to build upon this, though, with another witness from the Scriptures as to this prophetic reason for why we work a day for a year principle when dealing with prophetic time. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. 
He was also in Babylon during Daniel's captivity there as well. And he writes in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 5, about this same principle. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of days, 390 days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. So now we have two witnesses to deal with the idea of a day for your principle in Bible prophecy. Let's look at a chart here as we begin to break this down. We're told a time, times, and the dividing of time. Now, a time in the Bible is indicative of a year. And a year in biblical time is 360 days, working off a lunar calendar being roughly 30 days per month. So we have a 360-day year. Two times would be two years. So two times 360 gives us 720. And then half of a time would be half a year. So now we have 180 days. And we add that up and we get 1,260 days or 1,260 years. Now, it is a historical fact that on February 10th, of 1798, Berthier, general of Napoleon, head of the Republican Army of France, entered Rome and took the Pope captive. And this Pope was abolished from Italy and died in exile in 1799. The papacy coming to absolute power after putting down the Ostrogoths in 538, and you add 1,260 years to that, and you come to 1798. And history clearly attests to this. Now, 1798 becomes a very significant date for us to work off of as we continue for the next few nights. Very important, and we're going to continue to deal with that more, and you'll see why as we keep going. Now, in Daniel 2, a rock hits the image of the statue and smites all these nations, and the fifth kingdom is set up. We read about something very similar in Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. Go with me there. Daniel 7, verse 11. Working off the principle of expansion, we merely see that these beasts in Daniel 7 are just expanding on our understanding of Daniel chapter 2. It says here, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Pagan Rome was from 161 B.C. to 483 A.D., when its complete divisions had taken place. Papal Rome is completely set up by 538 B.C. and continues down to 1798 B.C. and has been referred to commonly as the Dark Ages. But it still does remain to this day. Now, what is really amazing about Rome in its two phases, pagan and papal, is that it has existed for an incredible 2,180 years, which would correlate very well to the legs of iron. The length of time and the power that it has manifested. How much longer till it's given to the burning flame? Well, it can't be long now, and we're going to see why as we continue the next three nights. But something of note in all of this so far, as the further we have come down in history of these nations, the more minute the details become. And we're going to see this all the way through the book of Daniel and Revelation 
in these next several nights that we spend together. The closer we get to the end, the more specific and minute the information. That's really interesting because typically the way it would work with us when we're writing about something is the closer we are to something, the more detail is given. And as you get further along in the subject matter, it becomes more vague or more nondescript. But with Bible prophecy, you begin with a, as we said, a general outline with Daniel 2, but then you get more specific as you continue to go down through the time of prophecy to where we get to where we are now in Bible prophecy, and we are given very, very accurate details to be looking for that would let us know that the coming of Jesus Christ has to be very near. And night four, that will make a lot more sense as we begin to look at the king of the north in Daniel 11. But this is a very important point. And none but the mind of God could do such a thing in such a concise manner as this. But how is this? Why does it work that way? Well, Isaiah 46, if you'll turn with me there, to Isaiah 46, verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9, we're told. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Now, why is there none like God? Because it tells us in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Why would this be taking place the way it is? Because God declares literally the end from the beginning. He has already seen all this. So prophecy merely to us is history foretold in advance. And as we trace the history down, then we know where we are in time. Now we must keep in mind, though, we have an adversary, someone who would like to see us be late in our prophetic understanding of time and cause confusion over this. But if we follow a literal historical methodology of study, we cannot be confused. And if we use certain rules of interpretation, as we talked about the first night, then things become very clear for us as we study prophecy. It's not given to private interpretation. It's something that we can understand. So then, we have one more line of prophecy to deal with this evening before we close. We've already talked about this great image in Daniel 2. We've talked about these four beasts in Daniel 7, one of the beasts in two phases. And now we're going to talk about a ram, a goat, and a horn beside the cross here. And it's on this chart as well. But we're going to talk about Daniel 8 now. We're going to see another expansion of what we've already dealt with in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. If you go with me to verse 20 of Daniel 8, we read, now remember we're heading the high points here. It says, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. So we don't have to guess who the ram is. We're told exactly who it is. It's a representation of the Medo-Persian Empire. So on our image, the Medo-Persian Empire was represented as silver. On the beast, it was represented as a bear. And now we have another image, beast, a ram that represents Medo-Persia. So who is the goat? Well, we don't have to guess about that either because in verse 21 it tells us, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is who? What well, tells us? It's the first king. You see, God wants us to be clear on Bible prophecy. He doesn't want us to be confused. He's so gracious and kind to tell us exactly what the definitions are here. So we don't have to wonder. The great horn is Alexander the Great, who was a man of unbridled appetite and lust. And as I said earlier, 
It took him eight years, but he had overthrown the Persian Empire. And he died in Babylon in a drunken fit at the age of 33 in 323 B.C. Now, as we continue, we look in verse 22, and we read, Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And we're also told that in Daniel 8, verse 8, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. You see, when Alexander the Great was laying on his deathbed, dying after his drunken debauchery, he actually was uh, participating in the festival of Bosches, and he drank the Herculean cup twice. Herculean cup, from what I understand, would hold about a gallon and a half of wine. So Alexander the Great drank three gallons of wine, which I cannot even imagine someone would be capable of doing that. But he basically died of alcohol poisoning. And they asked him, they said, to whom should the kingdom go? And he said, let it go to the strongest. And so for the next couple of decades, they fought back and forth. But finally, it settled upon four divisions, four divisions of Greece. And here we have a map of these four divisions. Now, we need to pay special attention to this because this becomes very significant for us as well as we continue our study of prophecy, especially on night four. We really need this information to help us understand the king of the north and how Islam ties into Bible prophecy and makes perfect sense with what we dealt with on the first night. See, the, the seminar is expansive. It builds on itself. But the northern empire of Greece went to Lysimachus. The western portion of Greece went to Cassander, excuse me, the eastern portion. The western portion went to Seleucus and the southern to Ptolemy. Ultimately, and we'll see this on night four, it was Seleucus and Ptolemy. Ptolemy controlling the south and Seleucus controlling the north. He eventually was able to put down Lysimachus and Cassander and take control of this area and control the Greek empire from the northern portion and Ptolemy, the southern portion. But these are our four divisions that we need to understand. Now, if we look in verse 9 of Daniel 8, we read, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And then if you will skip with me to verse 23, we read, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark senses shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty but not in his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and morning, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted, and was six certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Now, we have the horn represented on the chart. We started with the goat. I mean, we started with the ram, excuse me, to the goat, and now to this horn. Now, it starts as a little horn, but it becomes a great horn. And this is showing how the pagan to papal form of Rome grew, starting as a little horn and growing into a great horn. So 
final points to consider about this little horn as we close this evening. The first point is this. It's rise to power in the latter part of the kingdom. That is the four kingdoms. Rome did this. Number two, it was little at first. Rome was very small. Rome, if you know the legends of Rome, a lover of history would know that I took Latin when I was in high school, so we talked about this. Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus who were legends who have been raised by a mother wolf. And many times you'll see the brass images of this, of them there nursing on the teats of a wolf. Um, actually, Romulus and Remus founded what would be the Roman Empire long before Babylon even came into existence. It started very small. The third point would be that it waxes exceeding great toward the east and toward the south and toward the pleasant land, which is Jerusalem in our understanding of geography in Bible prophecy, and that will become more significant for us on night four as well. But Rome did this. Number four, would cast down some of the hosts and stars to the ground. Rome did this. How did it do it? It did it by persecuting the disciples and ministers of Jesus as no other power ever did. Rome was a persecuting power in both its pagan and papal form. Number five, he magnified himself even to the prince of hosts. Rome did this through both Herod and Pontius Pilate as they conspired against Jesus Christ. The sixth point shall destroy wonderfully the mighty and holy people. Rome did this. 50 to 100 million martyrs make good this charge. A seventh point would be the only power that succeeded the four kingdoms that waxed exceeding great. Remember, we talked about this. Rome in its pagan to papal form has literally been in control for 2,180 years. It's amazing. The eighth point. In the vision, Greece comes after Medo-Persia. So here in Daniel 8, it would be absurd to suppose that it's something different than Rome as we're talking about this little horn that grows into a great horn. Number nine tells us that he shall be broken without hand. Our ninth point. And that is a clear reference to Daniel 2.34. The stone that is cut without hand and hits the image of the feet. At this point in our study so far, we have laid a very good foundation for the rest of our nights together, these next three nights. It's very important to cover this ground tonight because without it, we really cannot understand tomorrow night America and Bible prophecy. We have to investigate these things and understand there is a clear distinction between pagan and papal Rome. It is said that history is written by those that win. And truly it is. Because today, we can't really be sure about history. You can go 500 years back, and only we know what we've been told about history. We didn't live there. But the thing about it is, is this. With this history, we can have certainty about it because there's no disputing it. It's open for all to see. All historians will clearly attest to what I've shared with you this evening. Not hard to find at all. You can just go into Google and hit Wikipedia, and you can find all this information very easily. This is how God does it, though. God has given a history for us in prophetic history so that none need err and be confused about it. It's merely history foretold, prophecy, and the God of heaven has done it through his prophets. And it's by the study of prophecy that our minds become connected to the infinite one. And so with that,
I'll close in prayer. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about American Bible prophecy. The night after that, we'll be picking up the theme of Islam, again, and Israel as well, on night four. Looking into Daniel, we'll see that very clearly in Daniel 11. Building off of what we did on night one. And then night five, we'll close with uh, things about climate change and health and these kinds of things and how this all ties together in Bible prophecy as well. With that, we'll kneel in prayer. Father, again, I come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. I thank you that you brought us together this evening to study from your word, and I just pray, Jesus, that you just open up our understanding to all these things. It's by your Spirit that we're able to look into these things as you inspired men of old, prophets, to write these words, and you open them up for our understanding if we will seek. I think of the disciples when they would come after you would give a parable, and you would instruct them and teach them. The word of God opens to us if we come to it with humility and a sincere desire to learn. And so I just thank you that we can be here tonight. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer. 